Welcome to 52% Productions. Our goal is to highlight the stories of those marginalized by the traditional U.S. history canon, examine their inclusion in the public sphere, and educate ourselves along the way through open dialogue. On this episode, we will focus on the historic timeline of the British colonies beginning in 1619 and the creation of systemic oppression. Thanks for listening. Everybody, welcome to our new podcast, 52% Productions. We are super glad you're here. Um, I'm going to introduce uh, my, my partner on this, my, my half of 52. Uh, this is Margie Sutherland. Hello, folks. Welcome to our project that we're so excited to bring to you. Um, I am what the internet refers to as Xenial, which means I... Remember life before the internet, but it was an integral part to my upbringing, apparently. Uh, and I will now introduce you to my wonderful colleague, whose voice you heard opening this wonderful little thing, Lee Jameson. Hey, uh, yeah, that's me. Um, I am, uh, I'm a Gen Xer, uh, so we've got a little, little generation perspective that we're going to be able to bring you. Um, Margie and I are both actors. We've been actors our whole lives. Um, mm-hmm. We are museum professionals. We are uh, in the tourism industry. We are tour directors. Uh, mm-hmm. So you'll see us on the road. Um, anywhere there's a story, we're, we're here to tell it. Um, Margie, why don't you tell everybody about uh, how we met and what we're doing? Lee and I met at the largest living history museum in the nation, Colonial Williamsburg, and our work there inspired this podcast. Uh, The 52% are the 52% of the population of Williamsburg during the 18th century that were of African descent, free and enslaved. That is the inspiration for this podcast, to shine light on those marginalized people. And we won't just be talking about people of African descent of the 18th century. We'll be talking about all of the people that are not held up on the pedestals of, what is it that you say, Lee? The American history canon. I love yes. that. <clears throat> the, yes. the traditional canon that is uh, uh, traditionally been very white, very male, um, uh, and tends to be um, of the upper class because <clears throat> they're the ones that hold the power. Yes. Um, we're inviting you guys into our conversation. Margie and I have been having conversation uh, about all of this for five years now since, <laughs> yeah. we've, since we met, basically, mm-hmm. since we met. If you were to visit Colonial Williamsburg today, you will not see 52% representation um, of people of African descent or of color in general. So we're here to highlight the public history sphere, all museums, uh, all historic sites, all ways of traveling uh, as, a, as a tourist and the things that you see as a tourist. We, we want to have an opportunity to talk about who's doing it right, who could improve, and how we can contribute to that. And to share some stories that um, if you are a part of this ecosystem of tourism and museums, that you could incorporate into what you're doing also. Yes, definitely. Because telling a more complete story is always the goal. Well, it should be the goal, I should say. So hopefully we'll be able to inspire you to dig deeper into these stories, into these people, because 
these were people, these were real people that lived, that walked the same earth that we are walking now, just in a different and very interesting time. And at the same time that all the, the names that we know about were traveling, um, there are parallel lives going on. And, you know, we all want to think that if we were to wake up back in ye old days, we would be the gentry <laughs> or we would be the queen. We would not. <laughs> we would not. So, so talk about people that are like us, you know, that, that are running these parallel lives at the same time and influencing the names that we've been talking about in our history books and in our classrooms and, and what the traditional canon has been. Welcome. Yes. Welcome. Strap in. One of the things that you and I talk about all the time is um, understanding the timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, that history in classrooms growing up about Um, the institution of slavery tends to be post Nat Turner, tends to be those, those decades leading right up to the civil war. Right. Um, Which, you know, we're talking the, the 18, Nat Turner was 1831 um, Mm -hmm. laws across the board tightened up um, uh, restricting, uh, restricting any personal freedoms and uh, systemically removing humanity in the most um, abhorrent, uh, uh, obvious, in the most obvious uh, mm-hmm. of ways. Um, and that's really what we're taught. But there's an entire timeline on how we get to that point. Right. We're kind of, ta- we're kind of just like dropped into slavery. I mean, it's, it's strange, right? We learn about the Revolutionary War, but we don't really learn how we got there outside of the Stamp Act. They're like, yeah, this Stamp Act thing happened, and then they fought about it, and then slavery, and then the Civil War. Right, right. There was tea, and there was a Stamp Act, and there was a war, and then slavery, and then the Civil War, and slavery was over, and everything else. <laughs> and you were not really... We're not taught how we got to any of those points and all of the different things that had to happen, all of the things that had to stack up on top of each other for us to get to the point of any of those things. We still talk about systemic racism, right? Mm-hmm. But we don't, um, we don't necessarily talk about what the system is and how the system was formed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm of the opinion that... Um, People, some people have a tendency to confuse personal prejudices with systemic racism. Yes. Um, And that leads to, but I'm not a racist. It's not about your personal behavior patterns. It's about this overarching system. Mm -hmm. To understand the system, uh, you got to go to how the system started. Exactly. Um, And that's also not George Washington. That's long before he was walking the planet, right? We have this glorious uh, event that happened last year. Um, New York Times uh, put this spotlight on the arrival of the first Africans um, to the British colonies uh, in 1619. And then what happened? A quick minute about 1619. I... have been doing, uh, it's been over a year's research on Jamestown in order to um, deconstruct it and reconstruct it for tour guides. And I am a native Virginian, born and raised. Um, You know, uh, I know fourth grade out in California, you guys are doing missions. Fourth grade in Virginia, um, we were talking about Pocahontas. 
a version of Pocahontas um, and Jamestown. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I would venture to say that the conventional thinking about Jamestown is this uh, myth, mythical version of uh, lazy gentry men who didn't know what they were doing, got on a boat to come here and make money. Um, not accurate, not accurate. Um, uh, a number of them were less skilled, but there were skilled artisans and carpenters and, uh, you know, they were, they were coming to, they, they um, arrived um, uh, on these shores where the Powhatan Confederacy, um, the Powhatan chiefdom um, was already living. In 1619, uh, it was the first meeting of uh, the General Assembly. So it was the first time that elected legislators met to talk about laws and governance. Um, we still in Virginia refer to it as our General Assembly. We still, that's our legacy. Uh, a couple of months later, two ships, which were not Dutch ships at uh, pretty close time points, um, arrived in what is now the Hampton Roads area. John Rolfe, we all know John Rolfe, right? Because of Pocahontas. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the tobacco planter that uh, married her. She married him. Um, he wrote that the white lion, which was traveling under Dutch letters of mark, in other words, this uh, permission for um, uh, given by the Dutch government for pirates, essentially, um, to, to be making money for their investors. Um, but it was uh, a British ship owned by a guy named... Uh, Samuel Argyle, who was, you guys, he was a pirate. I mean, let's. let's <laughs> I was going to say. The guy so was a pirate, a pirate. On the White Lion, attacked a, a Portuguese ship. Now, the Portuguese had been involved in the African, uh, the stealing of African bodies uh, to enslave them for their South American colonies for a uh, hundred years. Can yes. we sidebar to the, the Pope really quick? Right. So, um, so the sidebar is this. Uh, the Pope uh, wrote a, a papal bull, a papal order, um, uh, permitting uh, in 1454, um, permitting the, the Spanish and the Portuguese to, um, uh, to enslave African people. Uh, I'll even read you a little quote from that Romanus Pontifex. Uh, it says, granted, among other things, free and ample faculty to the aforesaid King Alfonso, it's Portugal, to invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever, those are Africans, and other enemies of Christ wherever so placed, and the kingdoms, dukedoms, principalities, dominions, possessions, and all movable and immovable goods whatsoever held and possessed by them and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. So jump ahead a little bit to 1619. (laughs) And there's a Portuguese ship that is carrying human cargo um, down to Brazil, which is the primary Portuguese colony. And it is set upon by these British pirates traveling uh, under Dutch permission. And when they raid the ship, the cargo to steal are people. So after that little battle ensues, then the, the White Lion, uh, the British ship, sails up to the closest British outpost, which is Jamestown, lands at Point Comfort, Hampton Roads now. And as 
John Rolfe explains it, um, cast, uh, uh, tw uh, tr traded 20 and odd uh, Negroes for vittles. So that is a commodity exchange. That is people for supplies. These are not indentures. I wanna be clear about that. The only name that we have of those 20 and odd is Angelo. Uh, and Angelo was female. Um, she had no last name in any of the records. She is recorded in um, 1624 and 1625 uh, as living in the household of a white gentry fellow by the name of Pierce. Um, she has no last name. Um, and last names are important when it comes to indenture. Um, one of the things that they talked about in that first General Assembly meeting uh, just a couple of months before the arrival of the White Lion um, was that uh, all indentures had to be officially registered. Uh, if you don't have a last name, you're, you're, you're not an indentured person. Mm -hmm. um, now, can we call these, these folks slaves? That's scholarly nebulousness mm -hmm. um, because we don't have slave laws in the British colonies yet. Right. Right. What, we, what these people are, what these 20 and odd are, are unfree. Stolen, unfree. 1619, with a quick jump back to 1454. I asked you to jump back to that because it, it gives more context of just how long. And we talk about, you know, when, when we're talking about slavery, it always comes up that like, oh, well, slavery's been happening for, for forever, for a long time. But I think when we're talking about, we'll just say North American slavery, even, actually just American slavery, because South American slavery is something else entirely, but just slavery as it exists in the Western world is much different than the way that it existed prior to anything else. Um, a lot more work was put into, for lack of a better word, perfecting it than anything that I've researched in past times of slavery existing in any other civilizations. It's challenging to think about the things that humanity has chosen to do to itself, to each other, and the lengths that it went through to ensure that it would be able to continue and be perpetuated throughout time and in various and sundry ways and the ways that it is still perpetuated or remnants of it are being perpetuated even today. It's important to, to look at all of these different steps that were taken, which is why we're taking this time to go through this timeline for you all so we can see how we got to this point because it took many, many meticulous steps and lascivious thoughts and processes to get to this point. And power grabs. Power grabs at every turn. So just, I'm just going to throw out a, a few quick numbers and then uh, we'll stop at a couple of key, key dates. Um, when, uh, when the White Lion and the Treasurer, which shows up a few days later, um, when they arrive um, in 1619, uh, the ens ens enslavement of Africans for the workforce is already happening. Um, in 1616, it starts in Bermuda. So Bermuda had a British colony because of one of the supply ships for Jamestown that got blown off course. If you've ever read The Tempest by Shakespeare, that's what that moment is. Um, and by 1616, Bermuda on their tobacco fields are already using enslaved labor. So that's a key point. Um, but it's not just the colony of Virginia. Virginia is our wheelhouse. Um, Margie and I have spent a lot of time in, in Virginia history. 
Um, obviously not the only colony happening. Um, mm -hmm. By 1625, you're getting the arrival of enslaved Africans to Dutch New Amsterdam. 1629, you're getting the arrival of enslaved Africans to Connecticut. 1634, you're getting slavery in Maryland. Um, and then we get into the laws that create the specific enslavement of people who are black in what becomes the United States. So in these colonies, um, we get to 1640 and 1640 is John Punch. John Punch uh, was a gentleman of African descent. He was an indenture, he and two other men. One man was uh, a Dutchman, the other was a Scotsman. Let's sidebar uh, just for a second and explain uh, really briefly for everybody, what is an indenture? What indent ah, yes. You brought this up earlier. You talked about how the other folks were not indentures. So yes, let's unpack that. An indentured servant is not by law property, firstly and foremostly. An indentured servant is someone that is under contract to work for a set amount of time for an individual to essentially pay off a debt, which their debt is usually their passage to a country, in this case, to America. These three men were working to pay off their transport. The Dutchman's name was Victor. The Scotsman's name was James Gregory. These three men, they were working together and at some point during their indenture, they decided that they <laughs> did not want to take part in it anymore. <laughs> and they absconded. Uh, they ran away. And they were captured and set to trial. Uh, and what makes this case so important is what the outcome ended up being. The Dutchman and the Scotsman, a little bit of time was added to their indenture. So they, their contracts were extended. They had to work longer to pay off their debt or essentially money was added to it that they had to then in turn pay off. John Punch was enslaved for the rest of his days. He was essentially made property. And it was because you could pick John Punch out of a crowd, out of these three men, these two white men, this one black man. He could be picked out easily, um, which starts to set this precedent of, you know, you two, yes, you are indentured, but you are not like this person that is here. This person can be separated from you two. So yep. they had established this sense of camaraderie. They obviously, because they chose to run away together, they were all in the same circumstance. Uh, but once they were captured, this interesting way of splitting them up was created with John Punch being set to serve for the and rest of his natural life. As yeah, and the, the article. The verdict is very specific about a particular element that John Punch had that the other two didn't. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm um, gonna quote the very end that says, and that the third being a Negro mm -hmm. named John Punch shall serve his said master or his assigns. Um, so that's his master's kids for the time of his natural life here or elsewhere. This is the first time that Virginia is specifically punishing somebody differently race. because of their race. Because this was a specific case, it wasn't necessarily put into law. The precedent was set uh, that if you are of a different hue, that even if you've committed the exact same crime as someone else, someone of a different hue, the consequences for you will be steeper based solely on that. And that's, that's 1640. Um, 1641, Massachusetts. 
officially legalizes slavery and they are the first colony to expressly do so. And they include Africans and they include the indigenous. They include the Native Americans of the area. Um, by 1642, Virginia has a Fugitive Slave Act. Um, so piggybacking off of John Punch, right? Mm -hmm. um, John Punch sets that precedent and then the law is created. Um, uh, 1643, Virginia instructs that black women are considered tithable for tax measures. Um, white females and servants um, and indentures are not. Um, so that's, uh, that's a dehumanization, right? That's putting black women specifically in the same sort of class as um, livestock is going to be. Mm -hmm. uh, 1650, you know, I'm getting to the big one. 1652, <laughs> uh, Rhode Island technically establishes the first law of gradual emancipation. However, it's not really enforced. Uh, and it's, uh, it ends up superseded by a 1703 law um, that basically changes stuff. Um, by, just side note on that, by 1750, um, Rhode Island has the highest percentage of people in bondage in New England. The 1662 changes everything. 1662 brings on a law that states that the condition of the child is that of the mother, bond or free. And this comes about because of a woman by the name of Elizabeth Key. Elizabeth Key was uh, the product of um, an interracial relationship. Her father was a white man. Her mother was an enslaved woman. Uh, she was married to a man who was a lawyer, a free white man, and he assisted in her case. They were able to win. She was able to live as a free woman based on the fact that her father was a free white man. The other uh, uh, tightening, restricting um, uh, of humanity uh, removal of humanity um, that comes from Elizabeth Key is um, the Christianity, uh, the baptism. Oh, the baptism. Yes, yeah. yes. So yes. that's 1667, Virginia. Uh, it, 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 prior to 1667, um, uh, Africans and indigenous could, uh, could claim Christianity as a reason for, for freedom, for um, uh, societal status. Um, and in 1667, Virginia removes that. The 1662 law that states that the condition of the child is that of the mother, bond or free, was brought about by her case. Instead of your status in life being established by your father, which was traditionally how it was established in English law for centuries at that point, it was switched to be that now the condition of the child was that of the mother, establishing that enslaved women would have enslaved children free women would have free children, which created a drastically increasing slave population. Do you know um, uh, at what point the 1662 condition of the mother is overturned? I don't. Is it ever? Is it technically ever? <laughs> the 14th Amendment. Oh, wow. The 14th Amendment. Um, uh, that's, that's what changes this. Um, if, if you think about contemporary uh, conversations about immigration and like the, the, um, the DACA, the, those who are born here from undocumented immigrants um, who are protected by the 14th Amendment, the 14th Amendment is what overturns the 1662 law. Um, so 1662 is, it, it changes everything. It's why when Thomas Jefferson had children with his enslaved woman, Sally Hemings, the children from that 
relationship. They were enslaved because of that 1662 law. It changed everything. Hey family, help us continue to bring you content. If you're loving what you hear, we'd love to have you show some of that love. Buy us a cup of coffee. Smash that donate button on our website. Better yet, buy these 20 seconds for your own ad time. Thanks. We do want to close all of our episodes with, uh, with the lifting up of a voice. Um, at, at 52%, we want to make sure that the, those 52% of Williamsburg are remembered. So we're going to have our little Ashe corner um, where we, we raise up uh, a life that was lived. I am lifting up today a young woman that I portrayed while working at Colonial Williamsburg. Uh, her name was Celia, and Celia was one of the 19 people enslaved to the Raleigh Tavern. By uh, During the time that I was portraying her, she was owned by uh, Mr. James Supple or South Hall, depending on how you choose to pronounce it. But Celia was the daughter of Flora, who was the cook, at the Raleigh Tavern. Uh, and in my mind, I like to imagine that Flora and uh, whoever owned the Raleigh Tavern during the many years that she was there, because uh, she was there throughout many owners, that there was a rapport that she had being the cook uh, of the Raleigh, that there was sort of an understanding that uh, her children, specifically her daughter Celia, would not ever be removed from her. Uh, because people were bought and sold uh, and traded and hired out from the Raleigh Tavern frequently. But uh, from what I can tell, Celia was one of the few people that were constantly there. Um, but working and living at a tavern in the 18th century sounds equal parts exciting and dangerous. Uh, there's all sorts of travelers that are coming in from all sorts of places. And as an enslaved woman, there are a lot of variables in being around strange men that consider you to be property. Uh, so I, I, I think about Celia and I think about her experiences and I, I worry even now for her, even though she's been gone for many, many years now, I worry for what her adolescence was like and what her teenage years were like. And, uh, and I lift her up. I lift her up in my mind as someone of great strength and resilience for being able to survive all of that in whatever way that she was able to. And, uh, and, commend Flora for being able to keep her under her wing uh, and keep her safe in whatever ways that she could. Um, but Ashe Celia for enduring and living in a extremely tumultuous environment, but still being able to, uh, to live in my heart and my mind. Uh, I'm going to lift up John Hope today. Um, John Hope was an African uh, who arrived uh, on a slave ship um, to Yorktown, Virginia uh, in the 1740s. 
and he was purchased by a tavern keeper there and uh, was named by the tavern keeper Caesar. And Caesar uh, was trained uh, in barbering. And so he, he had a trade that he uh, it was kind of a, an offering at the tavern as a perk. You know, you have, you have a man there trained to barber you to shave your face. Um, uh, and I think about that moment where you have an enslaved man uh, with a razor to the neck uh, of uh, a traveler, um, uh, probably a you know a little little bit of a higher station who's able to travel and stay at a tavern and and pay for uh, barbering skills uh, on site. Um, so Caesar uh, Caesar became known as Caesar Barber, um, the famous barber of York. Um, Barber Caesar, um, he would have had quite a position of trust uh, to be an enslaved man with a razor at a white man's throat. Um, by 1779, he is purchased by a fellow named Dr. George Riddle, uh, who is a, a doctor who is living in Williamsburg. And um, when Riddle dies in 1779, his widow, Susanna, petitions the General Assembly for Caesar's manumission um, for his freedom. And that petition is supported with 32 local names and Caesar is freed and he takes his name and he names himself uh, John Hope. And uh, for the rest of his life in, in his freedom, uh, he stays in the area, uh, he opens uh, his, own, uh, his own shop in the uh, 1784 tax records. Um, he has two other black men in his household, and one of which is his son, Aberdeen, um, who he purchased, who John Hope purchased. Um, and then uh, he was able to, to give manumission to free his own son. Um, by the late 1780s, he's moved to Richmond. He's bought land. He's built a home. He has his own business. He is raising the free members of his family. Uh, including his wife, um, and there were at least two children he was not able to get the, the freedom for, but he is, uh, he is a man stolen from Africa who, who endures um, and, and is able to set up a life of freedom, not only for himself, but for, for many of his children. So, Ashe John. Ashe John. Ashe Celia. Ashe. Well, thanks for tuning in to our premiere debut episode of 52% Production. Um, we, uh, we've got a lot of stuff in the works. We've got some great episodes that are coming up. Uh, we're talking about language. Um, we're talking about uh, the historic sites that are getting it right. Uh, mm -hmm. We're going to be talking about um, indigenous cultures. Um, and we'll talk about tourism and... Um, if you're a tour guide, tour director listening, how you can incorporate stories naturally into what you're doing. Thanks for joining us for our podcast adventures this week. Tune in for our next episode, where we will be discussing the continuation of the historic timeline. Be sure to subscribe to our mailing list so we can keep you in the loop. And if you have a voice from our past you'd like us to highlight, be sure to let us know www.52percentproductions.com That's the numbers 52percentproductions.com